going to be a weird day for me because we are finally ending a series that we've been on since last January. So it's exciting. And you know, when I think about this, I was thinking about this through the week, and uh, it was an extremely busy week. As most of you know, I, I, uh, I was in Wichita from Thursday on. I got back last night about 1230, and, uh, which would be 1.30 new time. Yeah, so if I fall asleep during my own sermon, then we got problems. But um, you know, just thinking about the last year and what we've done and what we've gone through and where this started, as I told you, I had, when I was planning this initially, the Lord put this on my heart to do, the, the Emmaus Road. And what we're doing, and in fact, I think I've got those pictures. Can you go ahead and throw those pictures up there? Is that what we're doing is we're finding Christ in the Old Testament. And where this doesn't look like much to most people, it's when you shine the light on it that it all comes together and you see the intricacy of the design. If you turn the light off, it looks like a pile of garbage, right? I mean, that's what we would expect, and yet... It was purposely put there. Every piece was placed by the author. It was his intent. You can go to the next one. It's the same thing here. You got a big mass of stuff. Looks similar to that bridge up there in Council Bluffs. But when you shine the light on it, suddenly you see what the intent of the author was, what it was all about, why they did this. And so when we looked at this, it's like when Jesus comes, when he resurrected, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two guys, and they're talking and all of that. And it says that he opened his eye, their eyes to the scripture, because the whole of the book is written about him. In other words, the light was illuminated, it was turned on, and suddenly they understood it in a way that nobody had ever understood it before. You see the change in the disciples. I mean... Peter goes from being a babbling idiot to this authoritative speaker in a matter of days. Why? Because the, the Holy Spirit was in him. The scriptures were illuminated. Acts chapter 1 shows a whole side to him that we never even knew existed. Because he was the one that, you know, get thee behind me, Satan. That was Peter. That's not exactly what you want Jesus to say to you. You know, so I mean, it's like, man, okay, so the whole of the scriptures, and we started from the very beginning, going through and looking at all the different pieces and all the different elements. And again, I remember out for 11 weeks, not 11 months, 11 weeks. That was my plan. And the more that I got into this, the more the Lord just kept saying, do this, do this. And we talked about it from the structure of the scripture. Because the one thing that we got to understand, that our Bible is not just a book, but a collection of books. It's 66 books. It's written by over 40 authors over a 2,000-year span. And yet, Jesus is at the center of everything. These are people that lived in different areas during different times and had different things culturally going around. Some were in captivity. Some were in freedom. Some were in slavery. But yet all of it has the same theme, and it's about the redemption of mankind. In Genesis, you have paradise lost. In Revelation, you have paradise regained, and everything in between is how God's doing it. And so when we look at this, and we're finding all of these things, and we looked at the different aspects of what was going on from the creation account, and then the fall, and then you get Noah, and then you get Abraham right after the Tower of Babel, and you get all of these things, all of these characters that we go, that if you grew up in church, you watch them on flannel boards. You remember the flannel boards? Praise the Lord for technology. We've come so far. But yeah, the little sticky things, you know? Like, I was always the one that I'd take the flannel board, and when she wasn't looking, I'd stick it up there, and I'd put a sheep on its head or something like that. I mean, I was just, I know that's hard to believe, right, Susan? You were there. But, but yeah, but I mean, it was just like, here it is, but all of that pertains to Christ. The, the cities of refuge that seem obscure, the, the commandments in the law, the laws of the Leverite marriage, the laws of gleaning, all pertain to Ruth and all of that, which points to how Jesus redeemed us. I mean, all of it, every aspect of it. And we went through all those, and we went through the covenants, and we went through the temple, and we went through the tabernacle, and all the little things in there. We're going to talk all about that a little bit today. And it's like, my goodness, how did we miss this? How do we not see this? How do, we, how do we just go through life reading the New Testament without the foundation of which it's built on? You wonder why the church in America is so screwed up? It's because we don't know our Bibles. What is our church built on? What is our doctrine? We told two words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And I've talked about this on Wednesday night. Right doctrine, right practice. How can you have one without the other? Where do we come up with these ideas and all of this stuff? I mean, at Christmas Eve, we talked about the Christmas story. How many wise men were there? Why do we say three? Because it's in a song. It's not in the Bible. Where'd we come up with that? Church practice. I mean, we've got to get back to the Word, and that's what this whole exercise has been all about. Believe me, this was not my intention, but I, I thank God for it. Because just this week, as I was down there, I was at a conference in Wichita. It's an apologetics conference. It's for homeschoolers, so, you know, it was a lot of awkward children. And, uh, and some really awkward parents, for that matter. But... 
But, you know, when they're coming in, we had a, a parent come up to us, and this is why I do it. This is why I go over there. I don't charge for my services. I pay my own way. I pay my own expenses. I take care of everything. I want to bless Brian Young's ministry. He'll be here in about four weeks um, and help him out, you know, and so put some money in his pocket in the ministry so he can keep doing what he's doing. And praise the Lord. The Lord always provides for me that I can afford to do that. But I have a parent come up to me with a young, or their, their daughter has been in, went to college, freshman in college, been there since the beginning of the year. And grew up in the church, loved God and all of that. And then one day, Colin says, you know what? I don't believe in God anymore. I'm an atheist now. I wish that was an isolated event, but it's not. It's far from it. And he said that three weeks ago, she decided she'd go to church with him. And during the worship time, it's just what we went through. He looks over and her hands are up. And she's crying. Why? Because God's touching her. He's getting a hold of her. He's trying to remind her. But what do you do from there? And so we were able to answer questions. He was there by himself. We gave him some resources. Then he brought her back to come talk to us. And we were able to help her and point her in the right direction. Now we pray for her, you know. But, I mean, it's like, why did all of this happen? Because she had faith with no conviction. Her faith was based on what her parents believed, not off, off the truth. I mean, for the youth group, we're, we're starting the young people with that very thing. Why do we believe what we believe? Christianity is all for naught if it's not true. How can we prove that it's true? Jesus resurrected? Are you kidding me? I don't know how about you, but how many people have you met that came back from the dead? I'm at a big fat zero. So how does that happen? How do we know? So we're going through all of that stuff with them. Why? Because when we get done, they're going to have a foundation of, of belief in the word. Like you and I didn't have the, the luxury uh, because nobody took the time. And so when we look at the word of God, it's the foundation of everything we do. But, and when we see the picture of what Christ has done on every page... It just brings new light to it. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go back to the beginning. With the story of Adam and Eve, we know the creation account, right? In six days, God created, seventh day, he rested. What's the first thing that God created? Not light. In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Time, space, and matter. All physical properties, we know that thanks to Albert Einstein and his crazy hair. Theory of relativity. Shows that time has physical properties. It's the first thing God created. And God was outside of time. He was the uncaused first cause. He was the one that brought it all into being. Because the laws of cause and effect and the laws of causality, that's something that is the cause, cannot have a cause because it has to be the first cause. There has to be something that sparked it. And if it was the Big Bang, that's great. I just know who banged it. It wasn't in the beginning was nothing and then nothing exploded creating everything. That doesn't make sense. And yet that is the basis of all our science today. We're smart, folks. But God creates everything in perfection. He creates this world, and he says, Adam, I create man. I want you to name the animals. And he says, but you need a partner. He creates a wife. Everything is glorious. Everything is good. Then in chapter 2, he plants a garden to the east of Eden, and he says, hey, I'm going to put you in. And he puts man in there. Life is good. He says, now here's what I need you to do for me, okay? This is pretty simple. I think you and I could follow these rules. Some of us are more dense than others, but for the most part, I think you and I could follow these rules. You see all these trees here? Pick any one of them that you want to eat of. It's fun. Pick one. If you like pears, eat pears. You want apples, eat apples. There's oranges. There's mangoes. I assume. I wasn't there, but I'm assuming. Maybe there was stuff better than that. I don't know, but the bottom line is you can eat of any of them, but just stay away from this one. That's all you got to do. It seems pretty simple. Adam tells his wife, and what she do? She's walking around one day, and the serpent... Satan himself shows up and said, did God really say? And of course, Eve twisted the scripture a little bit, or twisted the words of God. It says he can't eat it, can't even touch it. Now, I don't know if that was Adam being overprotective and saying, listen, you just stay away, right? Because if you've ever had kids and you can kind of get that, right? It's like, you know what? Don't look at each other. Don't touch each other. Don't breathe near each other. Just stay away. So, I mean, maybe that's what's going on. We don't know. But the bottom line is he said, you know, he just doesn't want you to know what he knows because you'll be like God. That was his goal. And in doing that, he made him fall. And we see this, and then we see God deal with him specifically. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14, he looks at the serpent and says, The Lord God said to him, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But I will put enmity. Between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Some of your Bibles may say he will crush 
your head. It just depends on how you want to look at it. But the bottom line is this. We see something unique here. It's kind of hidden in the text a little bit. You've got to put the whole picture together to realize what's going on. But that seed is not the next line of children. And it's not. I have watched so many weird things come out of this. Like, why do you think women are afraid of snakes? Genesis 3. Well, you know what? I know a lot of men that are afraid of snakes. I play golf with one of them. And he's a tall man. There's nobody further away from the snakes than him, but he don't like them. You know, that has nothing to do with anything. Why? Because, I mean, my personal opinion, this isn't a snake. It's a title, but, but well, that's splitting hairs at this point. But what? who is this seed? This seed that he's talking about. You get into this seed war that's going on between the plan of God and the plan of the enemy. This is the, the seed that's going on. We know who that ultimate seed is. It's Jesus. The King James authors helped you. They capitalized the he. Oh, it's he. It's Jesus. Oh, we get that, right? Don't always fall for that. That's not always accurate. But in this case, it certainly is. But who is the seed of the serpent? We can look at a different, some are different ways. You get into Genesis 6 and you get in some wacky stuff, right? But it's not just that. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil. He looked at them and said, hey, you're not of me. You're of him. You're the offspring of that. These false teachers teaching things that were not so. Teaching what they wanted, trying to control the people is really, that was all that was it about. But all we see here in the beginning is that there's one that's coming. And there's going to be a battle. You will not win. You might set him back a little bit. You might bruise his heel. But you yourself will be crushed. And then we go forward in time a little bit. And we get through the account of Noah, which is powerful. And you talk about the covenant that God had with Noah. That every time you see a rainbow, it should remind you that God will never again destroy the world with water. He promised he would. And, and, and you know, and again, this is another argument that I see. But you look around the world of what a flood does. And you see the topography of everywhere you go. It's like, huh, I think the world was covered in water at one point. It makes sense. But you get past that. And then you get the account of the Tower of Babel. Right, with Nimrod, which we'll be talking about in depth a little bit more here uh, Wednesday night. But with, with this guy named Nimrod, and he's there, and they're, 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 God told him to spread out. I want you to spread out and do all this. And Nimrod says, no, we're going to stay here. And they built the tower, according to Josephus, to make it high enough that God couldn't drown them if they flooded the world again. Now, God had promised he wouldn't, but that was the point, or at least according to Josephus. He was an ancient uh, Jewish historian. And he, so they do this, and God told them to spread. So what does he do? He comes down, he confuses their language. He says, no, if you're not going to do it on your own, you're going to do it because I'm making you do it. So all of a sudden, in the, uh, the blinking of an eye, they're all speaking different language. So what do they do? They pocket together those who speak the same, and they go about their business. They go on their way. That's Genesis chapter 10, where it talks about the, the, tower, or the, the table of nations. But in Genesis chapter 11, suddenly you're introduced to a man that is a popular man. His name is Abram, later to be called Abraham. But he comes on the scene, he's minding his own business, he's kind of wealthy, life is good for him. And God says, hey, I want you to pack up, I want you to move to a land that I will show you. He's about 75 years old when he says that. You know, most of us at 75 are thinking, I ain't going nowhere, I want less stairs, I want less movement. But not for him. So he sort of does it. He does get there eventually, he takes his time, he spends some time where where he probably shouldn't have, but be that as it may. And so he gets to the land of Canaan, and God appears to him again and says, Hey, everything here, it's all going to be yours. It's going to belong to you. It's going to belong to your descendants. And God's going to cut a covenant with him. And it's going to be an unbreakable covenant. If you remember, when we went through all the covenants, is that there were covenants that had man involved, and there were covenants that were for man. And this is one of those that was for man, because God puts Abraham asleep. And God himself performs the duties to make this covenant, and it's a promise. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. This land is promised to you. It kind of takes two-fold approach. It takes a couple of different times that he does this in, in pieces. But he makes a promise to him, and that promise ultimately affects you and I. Because Abraham was the first Israelite. There was not one prior to him. He was it. He creates a nation out of Abraham, and that nation was to be separated. And that nation is where Jesus will come from. And that nation, because of their rejection of Jesus when he showed up, is the reason that you and I are sitting in church today. Because we are not the Israelites. This covenant was unbreakable. But he promised him he's going to be the father of many nations. Now, how do you be a father? You've got to have some children. He had none. They tried. It was not working. So since they had never had children, he, he says, okay... I'm going to give you a son. And so he believed God because God told him. 
His wife didn't look at it that way. She kind of laughed at him. It's like, I'm an old lady. This ain't happening. It didn't happen when I was young. It ain't happening when I'm old. But she's got a plan. Now, this is, you know, I've, I've seen some people, you know, go off on a tangent here and say, guys, don't listen to your wife. That's bad advice, okay? They're usually pretty smart. This was dumb. And he says, I've got this handmaid, Hagar, and I want you to go and you have a child with her. Now, this was common practice back then. Remember, procreation was everything to them. That was how they did it. And if, if they were incapable of having a child, they would do this. It was about keeping the, the, the line alive, the lineage. So he does that, as any male probably would. Like, you see that cute girl over there? Yeah, she works for me. Go ahead and go have a child with her. Well, okay, if you say so, honey. Right? And he does, and he has one named Ishmael. Now, this is the beginning of most of the problems that are in the Middle East right now, but we're not going to get off on that. He has Ishmael, which is a son, and he's proud of this son, and he, he, he loves this son. But this is not the child that was promised by God. This is a child that was a result of man. And God appears to him again and says, I'm going, and makes another covenant. This is the part where it says specifically, you're going to be the father of many nations. And they have a sign for that covenant. And that sign is circumcision. And they're going to do this. And it promises him again, in one year, a child is going to be born. And at this moment, he changed the name of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. He put that H in there, which doesn't seem significant to us. But when you look into the Hebrew, that H is the Ruah. It's the Spirit of God. It's similar to how when you and I are born again, when we give our life to Christ, Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of us. And so then after this, Isaac is born, the son of promise, the one that he should have waited for, didn't. But now he's got two, and he's got to deal with that. Abraham's been waiting for a long time, and eventually he's going to send uh, Ishmael off. And God says, I'm going to make him a great nation. And they're a great nation. Abraham just stuck with the plan of God. He'd have been all right. But at some point... God tells Abraham, he says, this is what I need you to do. I need you to go up on the mountain. I need you to sacrifice Isaac. I need you to, I need to, basically he's testing his faith, essentially. But there's a picture that's going on there. He's going to go up on the mountain. He's going to offer him as a burnt offering. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But they go to the base of the mountain. They had two servants with them. and said, you guys stay here. They got the wood. They got everything that they need. And they begin to go up the mountain. And then Isaac, in his infinite wisdom, says, hey, where's the lamb at? Where's the sacrifice? You know, and, and Abraham looked at him and says, God would provide himself the sacrifice, not for himself. He said, he would provide himself the sacrifice. That's an interesting use of words. And as he gets up there at the last minute, the angel, he's ready to do it. He's got him up on the altar. It's built. They're going to light the fire. He's got the knife in the air. The angel of the Lord, which we said is, is Christ himself more than likely, stops him and says, I now know. You're willing to do anything that you trust me. And often the, the thicket, they find a ram there and they sacrifice that. And that's all well and good. But the thing is, is here we see a picture of the sacrifice because this is the same place where Jesus It's a father sacrificing his son for everybody else here. Now that seems a little nuanced here. And go back and listen to the sermon on this specifically for all the details. But at that moment, Abraham called this place that the, the Lord will provide. This is the name of the land that they are on. And what's interesting here is at that moment, after the sacrifices, they go back down the mountain. But Isaac's name's not mentioned. You assume he's with them. Why wouldn't he be? He didn't leave him behind. He, but his name, he's, it's not mentioned there. And this is the nuance of the Holy Spirit writing the Word of God. He goes down the mountain, and eventually he'll send a servant that's not named off to another land to grab for Isaac a bride. And after that bride comes together, again, Isaac is mentioned. What is that a picture of? That when Jesus goes away, the Holy Spirit will go and collect the bride, and then they will come back together. Again, you see all of these little nuances, and that unnamed servant is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. Then you get to Joseph and Jacob, and Joseph's life is a complete whirlwind, right? I mean, one setback after another, everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and yet in all of that, God promotes him up in a pagan land. He makes him big, and you know, Joseph is one of two guys that nothing negative is ever mentioned about him in the Bible, Daniel being the other one. And so here you see another great man, and he has a son that's named Jacob. And at the end of Joseph's life, he tells Jacob, he said, bring your sons to me. I want to bless them. And there's 12 sons, and I've got a list of them up here. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin. The same name as the 12 tribes of Israel. Not by coincidence. Reuben means behold the son. Simeon means God's here. 
God hears. Levi means join. Judah, let him, God, be praised. Dan, to judge. Naphtali, my wrestling. Gad, good fortune. Asher, happy. Issachar, man of hire. Zebulon, dwelling. Joseph, may God add. Benjamin, son of the right hand. All of these names have significance, but there's one in particular that we need to look at. Because again, what we were doing is we're looking to find Christ in all of this. And it's Judah himself. And in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, it says this. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. You see... Joseph laid his hand on each and every one of the child and spoke words over them. And go into Genesis 48, 49, and 50. You can read all about this in every one of these guys. But there's something interesting here. Because it talks about the scepter, the authority, the power will not leave Judah, which is going to be a nation, until Shiloh comes. Look up any rabbinic tradition. Who is Shiloh? That's the coming Messiah. That the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And that's significant. So we get through this and we get into the Moses and we know a lot about Moses. There's been more cartoons done about Moses and the Egyptians than probably any other single solitary event in Scripture. God told Abraham that his descendants would be in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And they were. They were slaves of Egypt. And it's during this time that they kind of lost their notoriety. They lost their Jewishness, if you will. That would not be the correct term, but that's a way that we can understand it. They're not worshiping Yahweh. Why? They're in a pagan land. I mean, they're still God's people, but they're not doing it. And Moses appears on the scene, and we know the story. He's born, he's put in the, the boat, the little basket, rolled down the river. The princess sees it, hey, bring him in, all of this stuff. His mom ends up taking care of him. Okay, long story short, he grows up there. He's on line to actually be the pharaoh, the king, whatever you want to call him, but realizes something. He kills a, a, a slave driver to protect his own people and is basically flees to protect his own line. And it's during this event that he has the encounter with God at the burning bush. He's walking along, minding his own business, looks over to the left and sees a bush that's on fire that's not being consumed. Now, I've joked about this, but I, I was told by somebody that they were on a tour bus in Israel. And of course, you know, these guys are doing anything. They work on tips, so the more that they wow you, that the more you're likely going to tip them. And there was been a fire in the area, and there was this bush that had been burned up. And all the people are looking at him, and the guy took the opportunity. He's like, yeah, that's the burning bush. That was from Moses. And the people are taking pictures and all of that. I mean, probably taking some selfies in front of the bush. You know, me and Moses, same land. We got this, you know. But... Here it is, and God, he says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And he says, I need you to go, and I need you to talk to the Pharaoh. And I need you to tell him that these are my people, you need to let them go. And Moses, of course, is arguing with him, he says, I can't do this. I'm, I don't speak well, I'm not authoritative, and I, he's probably nervous to go back, because some time passes. I mean, you know, he's much older here than he was. He'd been gone for a while. And he says, you know, you need to go. He's like, well, who do I tell him, Sim? He says, I am, that I am. You Tell him, I am since you. It's the same word that Jesus said when they came to pick him up, to take him to the cross. He says, who is the one? He says, I am. Our Bible says, I am he. That he is not in the Greek. It says, I am. He's making a connection back to God, and what happens that they all fall over as a result of it? Why? The power of God was there. So here we are, he tells him to go back, and so he does. He goes back, and we know the story. Ten plagues later, they get released, and they're on the run, they're fleeing, and then Pharaoh changes his mind at the last minute. After they're already gone, they decide to chase after them, which isn't a good idea for them, but that's what they decide to do. And long story short, they end up going through the Red Sea, right? Sea's divided, they go through it, they make it through, Pharaoh does not, they're on the other side. But God's taking them to a promised land, the promised land that he promised Abraham. said, this, this will be for you, you'll get the opportunity. And we know the story, right? We know about the two spies, or the twelve spies, and they, you know, oh, we can't, there's giants and all of this other stuff. And because of that, they're forced to walk through the wilderness for 40 years. But the bottom line is this, is when they're doing all of this, God took them through the desert. He could have gone through Philistine, he didn't, he took them around so that they would not flee back to Egypt, so they wouldn't get freaked out when they saw all of these people. But as they do this, they eventually come to the place where they're going to cut a covenant with God. And this is one of those covenants where it involves man's uh, obedience. But this is going to separate the nation. And, and essentially, Moses goes up on the mountain, and they, the people can see he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he comes down with the Ten Commandments. 
And he's going to read it to them, but he's, he gets down there and a calf, a golden calf, and they're worshiping, saying, this is the one that brought you out of Egypt. So he throws them down. So God makes them some new ones. And they go back, and even after that, God says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. I will be your God, you will be my people. Here are the, the statues, here are the ordinances that you need to follow. Do you agree to do this? They say, yeah, we agree. The covenant is cut, blood is shed. That's how they sealed the deal. He's, they are now His people. They're, God is in charge. They just have to follow Him. There's 613 laws that they had to keep. They had to keep them all. If you missed one, you missed them all. The covenant was broke constantly because it involved man. Different than the one with Noah. Different than the one with Abraham. But after this, God tells Moses, I need you to build a tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is kind of like a mobile tent. It's the house of the Lord. It had very specific instructions on what it was made of and what was in it. And I've got some pictures here, and we'll kind of just look through this quickly. But this is kind of the layout of it. We've talked about this. This is the the courtroom, the outer court, and then inside you've got the inner court. And of course, that with the light coming out of it would be the most holy place. You've got the altar here, the bronze uh, labor is full of water, and all of these were significant, and all of these point to Christ. Go to the next one. Again, the layout. Here it is. You get inside, you've got the table of showbread, you've got the uh, menorah, basically, and you've got the altar of incense, and in here is the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, which was the throne of God. That's where the presence of God dwell. One more, I think. Yep. Again, just to kind of show you what it would look like. But every piece of fabric, every color, every dimension, all of it was there for specific purposes. It all had a reason. It's not just abstract. At the tabernacle, it gets into all of these offerings and all these different things they have. And they have the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, uh, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of these different things. And they have different nuances. The burnt offering was one that would be completely consumed. A portion was offered, the rest was eaten. They would burn it up. The entire sacrifice is consumed on the altar, not just a part of it, but it was all designed to make atonement for the offer of sin. And then you get in the grain offering, which is always done in part, but it was part of the crops that they would bring in. It's kind of like a, a first fruit type of thing. And then you got a peace or a fellowship offering. And it was always com- uh, done with some sort of celebration that was going on where they would share the meat. And in that one, you've got the thank offering, the votive sacrifice, and the free will offering. And all of these things were done because they're expressing thanks to God for what He's done and provided, even ahead of time at different times. And you get to the sin offering or the guilt offering. These two kind of go hand in hand. But that is they've missed the boat. Something's happened. They've done something to become impure. Now these things were not to forgive sins in the way that you and I think. Because basically, these things would be done to take them from being impure to making them pure. There were very strict rules that they had to follow. And it was all about purity. And what would happen is that, you know, they couldn't touch dead things and, and, you know, all of these other things because the impurity would transfer from that item onto them. Then they would have to go through mikvahs, which is a ceremonial washing. They would do these, these burnt offerings and all of that other stuff to become pure again because you could not be in the presence of God and not be pure. You had to be. And that is where atonement is. It's this covering. Is what that means. And so it's kind of like the sun. The sun has a lot of good to it. I mean, it's powerful. It does a lot of good things. We can capture the energy. Plants do it. But if you're going to get close to it, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you got to be prepared. And that's where the Holy of Holies was. When they would go into the tabernacle where the presence of God, one time a year, the high priest would go in there on the Day of Atonement. And he would go in there, but he had to make a sacrifice for the people. He had to make a sacrifice for himself. And he had to go through all of these washings and stuff to be pure. And if he walked in there and was impure, he would die. And so it had to be perfect and it had to be done. But it was basically, if you were, it was making them ceremonially clean. And that's important later on. And so we get past this part and we get out of the tabernacle and we get to a guy that we've all heard of, a man named David. David becomes king after his little buddy there, right? I mean, uh, when he gets in there, I mean, everything is perfect, right? They, they wanted their own king. They bring him in there. And uh, what the heck's his name? His name? Saul, thank you. I kept wanting to say Solomon, but that's his son. Saul gets in there, and, and he's trying. He's, he starts off okay. The people clamored for a king. We want a king. We want a king. And God says, you don't want a king. He sends Samuel to him. He's like, trust me, you don't want a king. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your kids. He's going to take your people. All this other stuff. No, we want a king. So he gives it to him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. There's a problem there. Where's the king supposed to come from? Judah. So they give, God gives them what they want, 
and they get what they deserve. But after that, here comes David. David is from Judah. And he said he's a man after his own heart. Not that he was perfect, but that he was quick to repent. So he makes a promise to him. And in this promise, he says, you're going to have somebody sit on your throne forever. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains, referring to the tabernacle, okay? Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in her tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shalt you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously, since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies also the Lord tells you what he will make that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers I will set up your seed after you and he will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be established before ever before you your throne shall be established forever i mean this is cute talk right he said you're always going to have somebody as the king and as we know that becomes a problem because the kingdom is decimated i mean completely destroyed later on they're taken into exile but this is ultimately pointing to jesus who will sit on the throne of david it does not he does not do it yet it's coming but he wants to build a house for him and he said and, and, and he's not allowed to but he wants to. He wants to build a permanent structure because he's upset that he sits in the house, but yet God is in a tent. That doesn't make any sense. So Solomon comes on the, on the picture here, and he's going to get to do that. David lays all the groundwork for him, but Solomon's going to get to do it. God told David, you don't get to do it. You've shed too much blood. Solomon was a man of peace. David was a man of war. And so this permanent structure that he's going to create is going to be a house for the Lord. It's going to be called the temple. It's designed in such a way that you can see a light exuding from it from miles away at night. I've got a couple pictures of this just to kind of go back and talk about this, but this is essentially it. You can see it's significantly bigger. You went from one to ten of all of these things. You've got the molten sea. You've got the different labors for the washing, the mikvahs and all that. You've got the altar up here. You've got the uh, the porch and stuff that was all made and the metals and the materials that they were made out of was all significant. It's all pointing to the coming of the Messiah. Go ahead and to the next one. And you see the layout, and here you've got the tables of showbread, just like you did before. You've got the altar of incense, and in here you've got the holy, or the most holy place with the ark, and there were two cherubim, one on each side that were protecting it, if you will. I think I've got one more. Yeah, again, you can see it. I mean, it's gold everywhere. They spared no expense. It's incredible. And again, I don't want to go into all the details of this again, because we'd be here all day long. But the bottom line is this. This again points to God, because as I said, it was designed in a way in which light could escape, but it didn't come in. The windows on it were beveled in a way that light didn't come in, but light went out. How many times does the New Testament tell us that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's not cute words. That's a statement. It was magnificent. And this, again, is just beginning to point at that, but it goes even further than that. Because then we get to Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet. It was during the time of the exile and all of that. And he said a lot of things. But there's one passage in there that we didn't talk about because we didn't go through Isaiah specifically. But it's very interesting. Because remember, what were the purpose of the sacrifices? To make unclean things clean. Purity. Atonement. They couldn't forgive sins. Only God can do that. But it made them ritualistically cleanse. But in Isaiah chapter 6, and this is where we're going for today, guys. And we'll be finishing up here in a minute. 
In verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's having a vision here. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one has six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Remember that. And I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Unclean is the key word there. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why is he worried? He's going to die because he is unclean in the presence of God. And what happens if they did that? You die. Then one of the seraphim flew over to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs, or with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. This is all pointing to Israel down the road when the Messiah comes up, the one who can make the unclean clean. He's worried. He's in the presence of God, and he's unclean. And yet, this coal taken from the altar touches his lips. Something from the outside made him clean. It's interesting. Then you get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is the same thing. He's a prophet during the time of the exile, um, you know, in that whole span. But he, he kind of takes it a step further. In Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 1, it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. He's in his vision. He's seeing all of this stuff. So he's at the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced the east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. And he brought me through the waters. And the water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. And again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. And again, he measured 1,000. And it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And at the end of this vision, it's all flowing into the Dead Sea and bringing it back to life. That water is flowing out of the temple of God, filling the whole earth and making dead things alive. Point to anything, folks? It's filling this place up and this water is purifying. And then we go fast forward into the future a little more because we're just going a, a little piece at a time here and we come to the birth of Christ. This promise for hundreds of years was prophesied and is finally here. Shiloh has come. The Messiah is here. He is from the line of David and he is of the tribe of Judah. And we talked about that in Chris, around the Christmas area, right? How all of this fits. But prior to him... John the Baptist, the precursor, the guy that's out there was promised he's preparing the way for the Messiah. He's out there. He's born six months prior to Jesus. And we've been waiting on this because you remember we did that what we called progressive revelation and how we see that the sacrifice has to be made and how that lamb that was sacrificed had to be perfect and flawless and all of that. And the further into Scripture you get, the more you realize what this lamb is. And in Isaiah 53, you realize that this lamb is not a lamb, but the lamb is a man. But when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he's being prepared. Matthew 3 and 11 says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And who is he? Who is the one? Of course, it's the Messiah. John says, he's asked all the time. Are you the Messiah? He says, no, the one who comes after me, he's way greater than I. I'm not even fit to tie his shoes. And so in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. 
And he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And at the end of the progressive revelation, what what do we see? That that lamb has a name. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided himself a sacrifice. Jesus stepped into his creation. And his life on earth can be summed up in one verse. Because you know what? A lot of people today say Jesus came because we need to take care of the poor. And we need to take care of the widows. And we need to help the sick and the down and out. Jesus did not come to teach that because that was already taught. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35 sums up pretty much everything you need to know why Jesus was here. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus came to show the power over evil, over death, over sickness, over destruction. He taught in their synagogues. He taught the Word of God. He preached the Gospel. The Gospel is now. The Kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to repent of your sin. And He healed every sickness and every disease. The same thing that you and I are supposed to do. But Jesus broke the mold of every other person that ever proclaimed the Kingdom of God, including John the Baptist. Because even John the Baptist would have to sacrifice. And he would have to mikvah. And he'd have to cleanse. Because anything he touched that was impure made him impure. But Jesus went to the impure. And he touched them and he made them pure. He took that coal and he touched their lips. They became pure when Jesus touched them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their treasure trespasses to them as and has committed to us the word of reconciliation the purity of Christ is being transferred to those that receive it when we talk about this this word this new creation this gives the idea this metamorphosis that is not making old things new it's bringing dead things to life it's a brand new creation the same concept when God created everything out of nothing he's not fixing your life he is starting you all over This is the power of God. It's that purity being transferred into these people, that coal that touches their lips, that what? Now we can stand in the presence of God. Because we are made pure by Him. Because we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works lest any man should boast. But our works are a result of the change that is taken in us. And now when we go out into the world, we do different. But then he says that, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? That coals touch your lip. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now combine that with Ezekiel and let's look at John chapter 7 and verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Where's that water that's coming out of the doors to the east that started ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist deep and then only you could swim that took over the whole world and brought all the dead to life? Where's that flowing out of? You and me because we do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And all of this is leading up to one thing. I said in Genesis, we've got paradise lost. But in Revelation, we have paradise regained. Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't say that he fixed it. It says it's new. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he has said to me, 
me. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. How do you avoid that last part? You allow that coal to touch your lips and become holy. Be holy, for He is holy. Everything in Scripture pointed to Christ. The whole plan of God, from the very beginning, redemption was laid out of how God was going to do it. And maybe we don't always understand it, but He's going to do it. We live in a world where the gospel is preached that your best life can be right now. I don't want my best life now. I want what God wants. When the Lord is Lord of your life, everything you do changes. The reasons you do things changed. And I'll use my life as an example only because I know my stories and I don't know your stories, but we all have them. Is that when you do things for people, it's because the Lord is Lord of your life. When you give to people who are hurting, it's because the Lord is the Lord of your life. That living water is flowing. When you're out there praying for people, it's because when the Lord is Lord of your life, every decision you make is impacted. When I travel and stuff and I'm sitting in the hotel room at night, I don't have to wonder what movie I'm going to watch because the Lord is over my life. It's not going to be something inappropriate. When I have opportunities to give and help somebody out with the overflow that the Lord has provided for me, it's not because I'm a nice guy. It's because I was dead and I've been made new and the Lord is over my life. That means everything I have belongs to Him and it's going to be used for Him. I don't care if I make an extra dollar. It doesn't make any difference to me. If somebody can be blessed and they can see Christ and feel that living water flowing out of me, then so be it. Because the Lord is over my life. He touched my lips with that coal. He made me pure and I didn't deserve it. I still don't deserve it. Every day I fail Him. But yet He's still there. It's all about Him. Everything in the scripture is about him. All of it was pointing to him. And yet we have lost our first love, our devotion to God, because we don't have the foundation. I mean, I'm telling you folks, when I travel and I talk to different people, I was at a church in Manhattan, Kansas in January, and I preached there. And this is a church that's been around for 40-some years. They've been sitting under the word for that long. And it bothers me when they don't know what God has said is theirs. They know the hot topics. That's all they know. They know what feels good. If all we ever get are feel-good sermons, then where are we going? Why are we doing this? When Jesus is Lord over your life, it's not enough to just make Him your Savior. He's your Lord. Everything belongs to Him. Everything. Your time. Your resources. And it's exhausting at times. But His grace is enough. Everything. The whole thing, when we bring it all together, it's all about Jesus. It was all pointing, it was all planned. And I hope you can see that. I hope you see how from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It's all about His plan. And you begin to connect the dots and you put the pieces together. I never plan on doing a one-year series again, ever, ever. I didn't plan it this time. I never plan on it. Let me make that clear. Never. Never. You guys following me? Never. But I'm telling you what, I don't know about you. But I just, it's been so powerful to me to just watch the Lord work through this time span. And then to think, man, what's he doing in my life? Can I tell you a story real quick? And then we'll get you out of here. I look at my life growing up. My parents were not church people at all. We didn't go to church. We checked out a church here and there. I remember when I was a kid, I was pretty young. I don't know how old I was. We got invited to go to his Baptist church, so we went. I laid under the pew and picked gum off the bottom. Um, my, between that and my other memory is watching a lady pass out and we had to call an ambulance. I thought that was pretty cool. But that was the extent of it. We just went once in a while we, because it seemed like my parents thought it was the right thing to do and, and stuff. But we got invited to a church. There's nothing wrong with Baptist church. I'm not trying to say that at all. But um, we got invited to a church by a friend and she tried over and over and over again. And uh, my parents said, okay, fine. If you'll, if you'll shut up, we will come. And that was a church that, that my parents have been in now for the last 30 years ish 30 ish something like that I don't know how long it's been but it completely changed my family tree and so I'm standing here in front of you today because somebody took the time to constantly badger my parents not just about coming to church 
but given their life to Christ. When I was a kid, because you never know what God's going to do with you. <laughs> Believe me, there ain't nobody thought I'd be standing here, that's for sure. But I remember when I was a child, I would have these dreams, and it was weird dreams. But, you know, I, I gave my life to Christ as a young kid because I had a pretty, pretty rock star uh, children's pastor that took good care of me. And then she took a week off, and I vomited on her predecessor. <laughs> Talking about Susan, if you didn't know that, she was there. <laughs> she missed a week, and uh, I told my mom that morning I wasn't feeling very good. And, but I said that pretty much every morning, and she didn't believe me, but I proved her wrong. And, uh, but when I was a kid... I had this dream, and we lived in this two-story house, and you kind of had to get upstairs, you go up like three stairs, and then you go up like 18 stairs, and you go up six stairs, and the very top of the stairs was my bedroom, and you go down the hallway to the rest of them, and you go to the left, and you get around the attic, big old two-story house, it was a beautiful house, and I was having this dream, I was chasing my brother, and that's how you know it was a dream, because we were both running, and uh, as I get up to the top of the stairs, he hangs a right, and I go to follow him, and all of a sudden, something grabs my foot, and it pulls me into my bedroom and drags me under my bed. And it was the way that I pictured Satan, red horns, tail, pitchfork, you know, pretty sure he doesn't look like that. And he looked at me and says, why do you believe in God? And then I woke up. Now, I don't know how old I was, but I was young. And I also don't know that I could make this jump today, but I managed to jump from the foot of my bed through the doorway, land in the hallway and find my parents' bedroom because it freaked me out, as it would probably most of you, because he was under my bed. And I wasn't going to stick around to find out if he was really under my bed. But it was just the beginning. It's like, why do you believe in God? And I had several of those growing up. And I look at it, it's like, man, it all started with one family. You know, I've had the privilege to travel around the country in different parts of the world and, and preach the gospel. And I've seen hundreds of people give their life to Christ. But it all started with one person. And I'm nothing significant. I'm nothing special. I'm just a, a co-laborer with you guys just doing what God tells us to do. But man, it's somebody who had that living water flowing out of them whose lips had been touched by that coal, who had been impure but now made pure, that was been dead and now made alive, that took the time and effort to point my family to Christ. What kind of impact can you have? What do you have that belongs to the Lord that you're not making it the Lord of your life over, that you've not given to Him to be used by Him? Most of us, it's our time. Many of us give lavishly financially, which is great. I mean, it's great to do it. It creates possibility for different things. But what about our time? What about our talent? What about the giftings that God's given all of us? What is Jesus not Lord over your life over? What are you holding back from him? Only you can answer that question. What more can I do for him? The one who gave all. The one who stepped into his creation and took that penalty for us. What are you willing to hold back from him when he did everything for you? I don't know about you, but I don't want to hold anything back. God's good, amen.